This episode of British Murders is sponsored by Podcorn, an online marketplace which allows podcasters to connect with potential sponsors and seek out amazing sponsorship opportunities for their podcast. These opportunities include things such as host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions and more. All you have to do is visit Podcorn's website, search for available sponsors and send them a proposal. That's exactly what I did with Podcorn themselves, and as a result, they're now sponsoring this episode. By using Podcorn, you're cutting out the middleman. Any podcaster can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, regardless of if your show is well-established or if you just started today. You're able to set your own rates and collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn is there to support you at every step. They will ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work that you do for brands. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom and full control of how and when they monetize. If you're a podcaster and have always wondered how to start monetizing your podcast and have always wondered how to start monetizing your work, Click the link in my show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start searching for sponsorship opportunities now. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. The subject of this episode was born on June 26th, 1953 in Speak, a suburb of Liverpool in northwest England. His name was Robert John Maudsley. Robert was the fourth of 12 children, however all that is known of his parents is that his father was a Liverpool-based lorry driver. His childhood was far from perfect. Prior to his second birthday, Robert, his brothers Paul and Kevin, and his sister Brenda were taken into care after they were found to be suffering from parental neglect. As a result, the children spent most of their young childhood at Nazareth House, a Roman Catholic orphanage run by nuns in Crosby, a coastal town in Merseyside, also northwest England. Robert grew estranged from his parents despite them occasionally visiting the orphanage. The siblings bonded and got along really well. They saw the nuns as their family and their parents were more like strangers. After spending a few years at the orphanage, Robert's parents welcomed all four of their children back home. Robert at this point was eight years old. During their time away from their first four children, Robert's parents had eight more children at home. This took the total of children to 12 when their first four children arrived back at the house. Unfortunately, rather than returning home being a happy occasion, 
It was actually the start of a horrendous period of abuse. One by one, the children were subjected to horrific physical abuse. They would often be beaten before being sent to their respective rooms. Unfortunately for Robert, he was singled out and given the worst treatment. Describing his childhood, Robert is quoted as saying, All I remember of my childhood is the beatings. Once I was locked in a room for six months and my father only opened the door to come in to beat me four or six times a day. He used to hit me with sticks or rods and once he bust a 22 air rifle over me back. Robert has also claimed that he was raped as a child and that such early abuse had left him with deep psychological scars. Social services eventually stepped in and took Robert away from his abusive parents, opting to place him in a series of foster homes instead. The rest of the family weren't aware that Robert had to be taken away, as his father lied to the rest of the family by telling them Robert had died. At age 16, Robert moved down south to London. Whilst there, he started heavily abusing drugs and attempted suicide on numerous occasions. As a result, he spent his young adult life in and out of various psychiatric hospitals. Robert is noted as telling doctors that he heard voices in his head which were telling him to murder his parents. To fund his growing drug addiction, Robert started working as a rent boy. That's British slang for a young male prostitute. It was during his stint as a rent boy that Robert committed his first murder. On March 14th, 1974, Robert was picked up for sex by a 30-year-old builder named John Farrell. After taking Robert back to his flat in North London, John showed him pictures of several children he had abused. 20-year-old Robert, outraged by what he saw, flew into a wild rage and slowly garroted John, turning the builder's face blue. To garrot someone means to strangle them to death by using something such as a length of wire or a piece of cord. Robert handed himself into police and, after being declared unfit to stand trial, was sent to Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security psychiatric hospital in Berkshire, South East England. It was there where he earned his first nickname of Blue, after the colour of his first victim's face. On February 26, 1977, Robert killed his second victim. The target was 26-year-old convicted child molester David Francis, a fellow patient at Broadmoor. Robert and another patient took David hostage, barricading themselves in a cell. David was tortured for nine hours before being garroted. After finally killing David, Robert held his body in the air so that guards could see him through the cell's spy hatch. According to one of the guards, David's body was discovered with his head, quote, cracked open like a boiled egg, end quote with a spoon hanging out of it and part of the brain missing. Another guard claimed that Robert had eaten part of David's brain, which led to him being labelled as a cannibal. However, this grisly information was nothing but a fabrication. Unlike after his first murder, Robert was this time deemed fit to stand trial. He was convicted of manslaughter and sent to Wakefield Prison as opposed to another psychiatric institution. Wakefield Prison has been nicknamed the Monster Mansion due to the large number of high-profile, high-risk sex offenders and murderers held there. And worryingly, it's not that far from where I live. 
Upon his arrival at the prison, Robert found that his reputation preceded him. He had already been dubbed cannibal and brain-eater by his fellow inmates. On July 29, 1978, after only being at Wakefield Prison for a few weeks, Robert killed again. 46-year-old Salni Darwood was serving a life sentence for the manslaughter of his wife Blanche. Robert lured Salni to his cell and slit his throat with a makeshift knife he had fashioned from a soup spoon. He then hid the body under his bed. Robert spent the rest of the morning attempting to lure other prisoners back to his cell, however nobody took the bait. One potential victim stated, We could all see the madness in his eyes. After failing to lure anyone back to his own cell, Robert instead went out to search for someone to attack in their cell. Eventually, he sneaked into the cell of 56-year-old sex offender William Roberts. William was serving seven years at Wakefield Prison after sexually assaulting a seven-year-old girl. Robert attacked William by repeatedly smashing his head against the wall. He then used the makeshift knife to prise open his skull. According to other inmates who were there at the time, Robert initially set out to kill seven people that day, but only managed to kill two. After killing William, Robert calmly walked into the wing office, placed his makeshift knife on the desk, and informed the guards that they would be too short when it came to the next roll call. Robert was subsequently convicted of double murder and, for some reason, sent back to Wakefield Prison. This time, however, he was prevented from mixing with other inmates for their safety. Robert was placed in solitary confinement and has remained there ever since. During a spell in Parkhurst, a prison located on the Isle of Wight, the largest island in England, Robert met with a psychiatrist named Dr. Bob Johnson. After three years of interviews and counselling, Dr. Johnson believed that Robert was making great progress and was three quarters of the way through removing the aggression and potential violence that made him such a danger to himself and others. Despite this, Robert was moved back to Wakefield Prison without warning and the treatment was stopped. This decision was met with outrage by Robert's older brother Paul, who stated, As far as I can tell, the prison authorities are trying to break him. Every time they see him making a little progress, they throw a spanner in the works. He spent a time in Woodhill Prison, and there he was getting on well with the staff, even playing chess with them. He had access to books and music and television. Now they have put him back in the cage at Wakefield. His trouble started because he got locked up as a kid. All they do when they put him back there is bring all that trauma back to him. Robert has said similar and agreed with his brother stating, All I have to look forward to is further mental breakdown and possible suicide. In many ways, I think this is what the authorities hope for. In 1979, during his latest murder trial, the court heard that Robert believed his victims were his parents. It was argued that the killings were the result of pent-up aggression resulting from a childhood of near-constant abuse. Robert said, When I kill, I think I have my parents in mind. If I had killed my parents in 1970, none of these people would have died. If I had killed them, then I would be walking around as a free man without a care in the world. In 1983, Robert was deemed too dangerous for a normal solitary confinement cell. Prison authorities built a two-cell unit in the basement of Wakefield Prison, specifically for Robert Maudsley. 
he is always escorted by a minimum of four prison officers at any given time due to his violent tendencies. The two cells are slightly larger than average cells at around 5.5 metres by 4.5 metres or 18 feet by around 14.5 feet. Both cells have large bulletproof windows through which he can be observed. They are eerily similar to the cell in which Hannibal Lecter resides in the film The Silence of the Lambs, despite it being built eight years prior to the movie being released. It's thought that Thomas Harris, the author of The Silence of the Lambs, got inspiration from the cell in which Robert was placed in. The only furnishings available are a table and chair, both made of compressed cardboard. The toilet and sink are both bolted to the floor. The bed is simply a concrete slab. A solid steel door opens into a small cage within the cell, encased in thick see-through acrylic panels. There is a small slot at the bottom of the cage through which officers pass him food and other items, and Robert spends 23 hours a day in that cell. He's allowed out for one hour of exercise each day and is escorted to the prison yard by six prison officers. He is allowed zero contact with any of his fellow inmates. In March of 2000, Robert pleaded for the terms of his solitary confinement to be relaxed or to be allowed to commit suicide via a cyanide capsule. He also asked for a budgie. All of his requests were denied. Robert has gone on record as saying, The prison authorities see me as a problem and their solution has been to put me into solitary confinement and throw away the key to bury me alive in a concrete coffin. It does not matter to them whether I am mad or bad. They do not know the answer and they do not care just so long as I am kept out of sight and out of mind. I am left to stagnate, vegetate and to regress. Left to confront my solitary head on with people who have eyes but don't see and who have ears but don't hear, who have mouths but don't speak. My life in solitary is one long period of unbroken depression. Like many serial killers, Robert has a genius level IQ. He loves classical music, poetry and art, and is keen to take an open university degree in music theory. His family and friends describe him as gentle, kind and highly intelligent, remarking that he is great company and has a good sense of humour. Some members of the public have become pen pals with Robert. Jane Heaton, who has been communicating with Robert for a few years now, and even visited him in prison, has said, Since getting to know Bob, I have seen many prison documents about him. Everyone concentrates on the crimes he committed 25 years ago. It's as if they are living in a time loop, and no one is prepared to look at how he is now. I would like to see him get an independent review of his condition and find a suitable course of treatment for him. Robert has been deemed untreatable after killing a fellow patient at Broadmoor. He has written a number of letters to British newspaper The Times asking for access to classical music tapes, a television, pictures, toiletries and again a budget. He wrote, If the prison service says no, then I ask for a simple cyanide capsule which I shall willingly take and the problem of Robert John Maudsley can easily and swiftly be resolved. Why can't I have a budgie instead of the flies and cockroaches and spiders I currently have? I promise to love it and not eat it. Robert has stated that he only poses a risk to sex offenders, 
something which he vehemently despises due to his own history of suffering physical and sexual abuse as a child. He is known officially as Britain's most dangerous prisoner. That was the story of British murderer Robert Maudsley. First of all, I hope you appreciate my little accent in there. Something I thought I'd just throw into the mix, to be honest. Whatever. For more on British murders, please consider becoming a Patreon contributor. If you visit the link in the show notes and sign up for the middle or top tier, the middle tier being £3, the top tier being £10, you'll get a personalised thank you video that I will send to you from me, from the heart. And you'll also gain access to raw and unedited audio, all the scripts I use to record the show. You'll get early access to episodes a day earlier than everyone else. Behind the scenes footage for the top tier. There's loads of stuff I'm giving away on there. If you just want to support the show, then the lowest tier is a pound a month and every penny goes a long way. To follow the show on social media, just click on the links in the show notes. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. I've recently joined TikTok. I do some 15 second roundups on there of each episode, which is quite a challenge and I think it's pretty funny. You can send any case suggestions to me via social media or via email, which is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Please remember that I'm only interested in solved cases and where the suspect is British. The show today is going to close out with a promo for a new podcast that has quickly become one of my favourites. It's called Doomsday, History's Most Dangerous Podcast, and it's produced by the team at Funeral Kazoo. It's hosted by a very witty Canadian fellow by the name of Brad Chomer. I'll let Brad explain the show's concept in the promo, but I will say that this is one of the funniest, best produced and knowledgeable podcasts I've ever listened to. It's a real gem, and I'm so glad that I became aware of it at its inception. There's four episodes out at the moment, and I urge you to check them all out if you can. Links for the show are in this episode's show notes. For now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Do you like blood loss and decapitations and debris poking through your skin? If you like your gods angry, your buildings collapsible, and your insects organized into living quilts, Doomsday is the podcast for you. Subscribe to rediscover some of the most traumatic, bizarre, and awe-inspiring but largely unheard of disasters from throughout human history and around the world. This first season, you'll hear about the worst groin injury in the recorded history of medical science. People compressed to the height of a business card, preheated to the temperature of the sun, electrocuted by coconuts, and phrases like, the plague of horror had been cleared away by the cleansing mercy of the volcano. This is not the podcast you play around your kids, or while eating or even in mixed company, but as long as you find yourself a little more historically engaged and learn something that could potentially save your life, our work is done. All this and more on Doomsday, history's most dangerous podcast, a funeral kazoo production on the Anchor FM network. Find it wherever podcasts are found.